chapter. There's so much reading that I didn't ask you to stand. And I'm almost at a loss, really, as to where to start in on this. A chapter of First and Second Timothy is so connective with Titus that it's pretty hard to separate. But I want to read pretty much all of the second chapter of Titus and then maybe a portion of the third, but all of this is good reading, and I would advise you, admonish you to uh, take some time this next week or when you go home and read both books of Timothy and the book of Titus. Make the connection there with what the Apostle Paul is trying to do. Beginning at the first verse, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity, that's love, or in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands and to love their children. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good. Obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity and sincerity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering them again, not purloining or stealing, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the gospel of our God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that has that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us to denying ungodly and worldly lust, that we should live soberly and righteously and godly, in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, 
zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and to powers and to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. When he shed on us abundantly through which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Father, we thank you tonight again as always. We're in appreciation of the preservation of your word. Words spoken 2,000 years ago at least and still so pertinent today and we thank you for that we're glad master that we can open our bibles we have them we're glad that we have eyes to read and we have a mouth to speak and ears to hear and an understanding heart we thank you master because all of these things come from you now lord speak to us tonight we need to hear your voice we need to bring these scriptures lord it's been read in others out from the pages of this book Make them alive to us tonight. Allow us, Father, to do that. Touch every heart tonight. Make us humble enough, Father, to be receptive to the words that you speak directly to us individually while we speak to the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your grace. Lord, the grace of God, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul was nearing the end of his earthly ministry and the same kind of urgency that surrounds this epistle we find it and that's why I ask you to read First and Second Timothy we find the same urgency of the Apostle Paul surrounding the epistle of First and Second Timothy the same as we do in Titus. In all of these the Apostle Paul allows us to see that the return of the Lord is in view and the need for right living is expedient. Paul's sense of responsibility is strong upon him as his ministry nears an end. I took some time to look at that and the Spirit speaking to me. I thought, Lord, let us, as ministers of gospel and the saints of the Most High God, feel a sense of responsibility even when we even come to the close maybe of our life or our ministry let us feel a necessity so much that we can leave a deposit of truth into lives that we only can touch there are lives that you only can touch lives that you only can have an influence on 
as individuals. There's times when churches can have an influence on individuals and other churches cannot. Instead of espousing jealousy, there ought to be a sense of relief that somebody at least could leave a deposit of truth in lives and hearts and save them for the last day. You see, the Apostle Paul recognized that the progress of the gospel was being hindered and endangered by unruly men, vain talkers, and deceivers. And he wanted some way or somehow to impress upon Titus, who was leaving a portion of his ministry. Same thing he wanted to impress upon Timothy, that these goals that he had had need to be continually sought for. The message he had preached need to be continually lived and continually espoused to other individuals. And that unruly men, vain talkers and deceivers still had to be dealt with. Dealt with. Now in this epistle we have a, a lot of things in common. Uh, first and second Corinthians, but the emphasis on this is different. When you read again, and I pray that you will, first and second Timothy, the emphasis is on the doctrine. That they hold it pure and they keep it pure. But in Titus the emphasis on good living and good works. Having the gospel settled in our heart to realize that we must live a good life and do good works. Salvation is for that. First Timothy, there's a charge to Timothy. In Second Timothy, there is a challenge. But in Titus, there is a caution. A caution that if we're not careful, we'll not catch, even if we ever decide to read this little small book. And these three chapters of the book of Titus, Paul lays some heavy on a young man who is going to be faced with some serious choices. I think those same choices is ours tonight. I think we are faced with the same responsibility of good living and good works. Upholding the fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. Receiving the charge that God has given us. God has given every one of us a charge. He told Timothy, be instant, eat in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And in 2 Timothy, he challenged Timothy to do that very thing to the best of his ability. And then he talks to this young man called Titus. And he gives him a caution as to what is happening and what must be in his ministry. These three epistles are exhorting us to guard the precious deposit of the gospel. It's handed down to us that we might read it. It was written to Titus, but it is for us. It is written for Timothy, but it is preserved because it is for us. When Paul writes in 1 Timothy, he reminds Timothy to protect the gospel. In 2 Timothy, he admonishes him to proclaim the gospel. But in Titus, he tells us to practice the gospel. Amen. You see, there's a lot of areas in which we can improve on. The gospel needs to be protected. It needs to be proclaimed. I would say seriously that we cannot do either of them unless we practice it. It begins at the pulpit and the callings of the ministry. And it goes on down to the pew. Where each individual is told to practice what Jesus has told us to practice. 
In Titus, there's three divisions. It's written to the elders in the assembly. Tells them what they're supposed to be and how they are supposed to be obedient to God and blameless, stirred of God. Not self-will, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, no given to filthy lucre, but lovers of hospitality, lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer are the deniers. And then he talks to the classes in particular, gives orders to the older men and women. Then he gives orders to the young men and women. Then he gives orders to servants. And then number three, he gives orders to members in general. And it is this division, this last one, that I want to direct my remarks tonight. He talks about, the Apostle Paul does, and you'll see in his writings, he's a great fan of Jesus. And he always talks about the grace of God. The grace of God. You'll see that intertwined in almost all his writings. He talks about God's mercy. And he talks about God's grace. And we're going to talk about that for a little bit tonight. But before we do, I want us to look at chapter 3 verse 8. And let's look at that just for a moment. It says, this is a faithful saying... And these things I will that thou affirm constantly. Everybody know what constantly means. Yes. That doesn't mean on and off. That means always. Over and over and over and over. He says, this is a faithful saying. Any faithful saying is worth repeating and standing for. That they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Now, I wonder what he's saying there. If it's like most individuals leave it, find God, feel His mercy and grace, everything's fine. But not according to the writings of Paul almost anywhere. He says, you get a hold of this, you affirm this saying faithfully, uh, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. In other words, it's a little bit more than just feeling God in your spirit. It's a little bit more than coming into the house of God and feeling Him. That's great and we need to. But what he's telling Titus is there is a desperate need in this area, in this age that he's talking about, and he's about ready to leave. There's a great need for individuals to maintain good works. I think what he's trying to say is there's a lot of heartaches coming. There's a lot of perils coming. There's a lot of things that will sidetrack you uh, from who you are and what you are. There's a lot of tribulations and trials. There's a lot of things going to come in your life that you don't understand. Even though you maintain you are a Christian and are. And God has blessed you and by His grace and mercy He has saved you. But he's telling Titus, Titus, there will come a time when you're going to have to remember to be careful always to maintain the good works that you know to be in a Christian life. That those things are good and profitable unto men. 
Not just to us. Not just as we maintain good works in our life. Not just for us. It goes beyond that. You see, the issue of a church and a Christian is to reach souls. Amen? Primary goal of any church or any child of God is not how blessed we are in God. It's not to rejoice in that all the time. But allow that to reach into our spirit and bring good works in our life and maintain those even though the whole bottom of the world drops out from under us. For this is profitable unto men. Individuals that you are going to rub shoulders with. Lives that you are going to touch negatively or positively. Let me take my time tonight and give you a good Bible lesson on maintaining good works and the grace of God. On establishing within our spirit the need to be able to maintain good works. You see, this is a point in which the church, quote-unquote, and its teachings have practically ignored. ignored. The gospel has been preached for the most part to set forth our theologies, to build our own kingdoms and denominations instead of making men morally good and honest and faithful and loyal to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. You see, there is a test there of... Pulpit usefulness. I don't know if that's a phrase that is right or not, but I want to use it. Pulpit usefulness. Now, what does utilizing the pulpit consist of? Now, you've got to understand that there's more pulpits than just this one here. There could be a pulpit in your home where you minister and qualify as a good husband, wife, or child. You can make a pulpit in your workplace. You can make a pulpit in, in your actions wherever you're at. You see, but utilize the pulpit usefully. Right. Now what does that consist of? In gathering a large audiences? Having mega churches? Well, almost any sharp can do that. You see that. You see it all the time on television. Individuals so far from the truth that it's not even funny and build mega churches have lives coming in there uh, that has been deceived and is still being deceived. But that's not what the pulpit is for. And also it's not to stir up our religious emotions or our sentiment. You see, this usually diseases the conscience and this usually lessens our moral will and leaves the soul depressed. Anytime, saints, and hear me tonight, any time where religion just becomes emotionalism, we're going to end up in a spirit of depression and anxieties. Because we come to the house of God and we feel emotionally the presence of God and if that's all there is to it, our soul is going to be depressed and our spirit is going to be diseased. What I'm trying to say is we need that, but we need something solid under our feet. And the pulpit is to be used to solidify the saints of God, whoever and wherever they might be. You see, what we, what we don't understand in this day and hour is the answer is not in all of this. Pulpit is to be used to make men moral. Make them living agents of good works. And any pulpit is not used 
to correct humanity from their sinful ways is not a pulpit used and utilized right. From the pulpit always ought to come admonitions, ought to come faithful sayings of God. How the pulpit ought to come challenges and charges and cautions in our everyday walk and living for God and living our life for God. Our main theme is not, I'll say it again, our main theme, theme is not to garner huge congregations, although we would be blessed by that. Our main theme is not to mostly appeal to your emotions. And our main theme, using the pulpit of God, is to establish you where you'll not waver when the powers of hell come against you and you'll find some power of God to substantiate you and keep you when all hell breaks loose around you. You can still find your feet on solid ground. And even though you waver and doubt a little bit, Remember what Jesus says. He is faithful even though we are not. You see, you can't estimate a true church by its numbers. You can't even estimate it by its devotions. Because there's a lot of fleshly manifestations goes on in devotions and in worship of God. And you can't even estimate it as being true by the amount of contributions that it brings in. But you can estimate true Christianity by the members of its professions who are too resolute to let the gospel be spoiled. Who are simply so solid in the gospel that they will not stand by and allow anything to enter into the purity of the gospel. So established in their life that they're too truthful to lie even when it seems to be more convenient and too honest to defraud anybody, even though sometimes it's easy and too too moral to be immoral or commit immoral acts. This is in essence what Paul is telling Timothy. Let them find out what a Christian life is. Let them base their experience upon good works and maintain them. That seems to be going over and over. I feel a little pullback. Come on, saints. And maintain them. Keep them active from our life and from our spirit. Keep involved in the Word of God and in the power of God. And understanding Him. And establish individuals in short. So that all worldly wealth and power and life itself is just as cheap as dirt compared to right living for God. In other words, nothing is as important as living right for God. Hear me tonight. All the riches you can obtain is not worth as much as a life lived in the rightness of God. All the devotions you can give God and all the prayer that you can give God is nothing compared to the life you live outside this congregation and outside this church. How you let let God allow Him to dictate to you in these areas. You see, when we see churches established with members like that, I want to go over it again. Too resolute to let the gospel be spoiled. Too truthful to lie in any circumstances. Too honest to defraud anybody in any way. Too moral to commit any immoral act. And when we see churches like this, 
and made up of members like this, then we're going to command the confidence of the world and be able to influence them in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you want to influence somebody tonight? I mean, how many of you want to say something that would break the back of the devil? And would cause him to move over someplace. Well, let me tell you something. People gauge you again, not by what you say, but how you live. And if we claim to be a Christian saint, let's live like one. If we're not going to be one, let's don't be one. Let's establish ourselves and maintain good works in the presence of God. It's not a mystery on what God demands of us. Sometimes we think of the Bible as being mysterious. Sometimes we search out long dissertations of, of right living, but God makes it pretty plain. God makes it pretty solid in our life, what He means for right living. And I just summed it all, all up in that. Don't be so resolute that you won't let anybody pollute the gospel. Be so wise in the Word of God that you won't let any erroneous thing come inside of it. And when you get a chance to lie, be too truthful in there, even though it might hurt. And too honest to defraud anybody or too moral to be and commit any immoral acts. I had some statistics on... Some things, and I looked for them and I couldn't find them. They're around someplace. On some of the things that Christians quote unquote do, and the percentage of individuals who claim to be Christians who think nothing about lying, who think nothing about stealing, who think nothing about defrauding even their brother or God. And think nothing about immoral acts. Continue to do them. This is not in denominal churches. This is in Holy Ghost Spirit filled churches. And continue to do them. And continue to still declare that they are children of God. Titus was warned by the Apostle Paul. That he was going to live soon. And somebody leaves soon. And somebody was going to have to maintain good works. Somebody was going to have to get a hold of the gospel and live it. Not just preach it, but live it. And do that, he says, in the 8th verse, constantly, affirming, always, by our everyday life. Let it be no difference. I looked at myself and I thought, God, that's all right. You chastise me. I need it. Let it be no difference as to how we feel. God is still God. Let it be no difference in the days we get up on the wrong or right side of the bed. God is still God. Let it be no difference as whether we're sick or well. God is still God. Let it be no difference as necessarily the senses of what we have and how we feel. Just wake up and realize God is still God and He's still on the throne. And He's still ruler of the universe. He still cares about us. That's right, leave it. That's what Titus was supposed to stand for. That's what Titus was supposed to be uh, for. And he was supposed to do it himself and then espouse it to others. Emerson made a quote and he says, 
where there is no morality, there is no morality without religion, and there is no religion without morality. Now you might look and see where our nation has went. Then you might ask ourselves the question again, is this a religious nation? For he puts them both together. There is no morality without religion. You get it out of the house of God. You get it out of schools. You get it out of homes. And there's no morality. And there is no uh, religion without morality. Or I would say salvation. And then beginning at the 11th verse, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. Past tense. Hath appeared. Brought salvation. What else can bring salvation? Nothing. The law was not good enough to do it. It made demands and didn't equip you to fulfill them. But the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Two thousand years ago, the grace of God burst upon the scene. It was said this morning He came in to a vile, corrupt world. God has always been graceful. But we never saw it until Jesus came. Jesus was the grace of God. Jesus still is the grace of God. Unmerited favor of God. And that grace made its appearance in Jesus Christ. Two thousand years ago, in the midst of immorality... In the midst of religiosity, in the midst of chaos and troubles, in the midst of the Roman yoke being upon his people and where he came and where he was born, Jesus burst forth on the scene. And a light shines so bright that individuals could see, know, and understand. And it was he that brought the grace of God to us. It's been here for 2,000 years. Remember? When you first received it? Can you remember that far back? When everything was chaotic? And everything was dark? And everything was black? And you had enjoyed yourself? And then all at once, there was nothing enjoyable anymore. Blackness. Unhappiness. And then, Jesus came. You didn't deserve him, saints. I didn't deserve him, but he came. He still makes his appearing in the lives if they let him. And that grace appeared and brought salvation unto humanity. But what did it come for? To bring salvation, you say, yes, it did. But for what reason? Why were we saved? Why did the blood of Jesus Christ have was shed so abundantly for us had flowed from the old rugged cross and enveloped humanity 
and paid the price we couldn't pay and come into our lives and saved us and cleansed us and washed us insomuch we felt clean inside. Why did He do this? He didn't have to. We didn't deserve it. I don't care what you did, what you do. You can never deserve the grace of God. But what's it there for? Why did, he, why did He come? Why did He save us? Why did He cleanse us? Why did He wash us? What was the grace for? To go on and live as we were? Have you ever noticed so many times individuals feel like cleansing flow from Calvary and never change their lifestyle or change their way of living? Their heart is as hard as it ever was. Their actions are the same as it ever was. And they have done despite to the grace of God. Using it over and over and over. God's grace and mercy. Is that what He came for? Is that what He died for? Is that why He suffered agony? Is that why He made that, that trek from the cross to Calvary? Is that why he withered in agony? Is that why he refused to come down so he can embrace us and us continue to live our life the same as we always did? No, a thousand times no. It meant more than that. Paul says in Hebrews 10, 29, And when we tread underfoot the Son of God and count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing, we do this fight to the Spirit of grace. That Spirit which has come to us, that Spirit which has saved us, unmerited, undeserved favor of God, and came, enveloped the whole being. Yes. Paul with a warning there in Galatians says, we can fall from the grace of God. But 2 Peter 3.18 sums it up this way, but grow in grace. I like that, saints. It's not all over. When you come to Him. It's not all over when He cleanses you and washes you. It's not all over. That's not all the great there is to grace. Although we can stand a lot of that. Although He is a forgiving God. But Peter says grow in grace. And in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now how can we do this? Only when we allow grace to become a teacher. Right. Got it? Yes. Only when we allow grace to become a teacher. Not just something that catches us up to the third heaven. Not just something that applies the blood of Jesus Christ. Not just a merciful God that winks at ignorance. That grace came down. That grace washed you. And that grace cleansed you. And that grace did its job in that area. But now after that, Peter says, now you grow in it. In other words, grace has to then become a teacher to us. What does it teach us? Well, Paul was telling Titus exactly what it teaches us. Grace teaches us that denying ungodly and worldly lust 
always taught you that? If it hadn't, it needs to start. You need to allow it. Ungodly and worldly lust. Deny them the right of any part of your life. Deny them the rights, quote unquote, that they demand. Knowing that you are not your own, but you are bought with a price. In other words, deny ungodly and worldly lust any part of your living. That's when grace becomes a teacher. It teaches us that it is a necessity to deny that. But to deny these things is not enough. We have to empty ourselves of these that we might fill ourselves with soberness and righteousness and godly lives in this present world. Read it again. The grace of God had made us salvation, has appeared to all men, teaching us, had denying ungodly and worldly lust, it teaches us we should live soberly. <laughs> soberly, what does that mean? That don't necessarily mean just go out and get drunk. Although it has its connotations there. But there is spiritual drunkenness. Pleasure, mad world. In which lust of the flesh come upon us. And demand that they have their rights in our life. And grace teaches us. That that has to be denied. That there should be no entrance. Into our lives for these things. I said, now Titus, bad times are coming. The churches are going to be scattered. Persecution is going to come. And if anything is going to stand, it has to be allowing the grace of God that envelops you to teach you how to live. There's still a reality tonight, saints. It's still a reality tonight that the grace of God needs to become our teacher and begin to teach us how to live. Amen. Begin to teach us the rights and wrongs of our living. And you'll find out they don't agree with your idea of right and wrong. Amen. You'll find out that they uh, sadly disagree with a lot of them. But we have to live soberly righteously and godly lives teaching us to do this now in this present world Titus the world just like it is deserves your life and the life of others live this way Some 2,000 years later, the voice of the Apostle Paul still rings out true and clear to community chapel tonight that the world deserves to see lives of Christians live this way. Lay my life at you. 
They might put you down, but inside there's a regard for you. And inside there is a fear of you. For they know that there has to be something inside of you that solidifies you and keeps your hand in the hand of God when everything proclaims it should not be there. When the world demands a denial and sometimes when old flesh itself demands a denial, there's something inside established, sober, and righteous, and godly that says I will not turn him loose. Hallelujah. Song says, hold to God's unchanging hand. Build your hope on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How are we going to do this? Timothy says it. Peter says it. Writers of the Old Testament talk about it. Paul writes it in different ways in almost every epistle that he writes. And we have lost it. It's right here. Right in these little bitty chapters and these little bitty verses. Teaching us that's grace that's doing this. That denying ungodly and worldly lust. We should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. How? Looking. Hallelujah. If you lose sight of the coming of the Lord, you've lost it all. There is no way, saints, that we can live like this when we lose sight of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is these things that ground us and keep us and anoint us and establish us and won't let us go as we look for His coming. He's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. I want to be ready. I want to be ready. This makes me live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Glory. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, things don't look good now. Things look bad now. What advantage is it to live like this? Our friend, one glimpse into heaven, one glimpse concerning the kingdom of God, one avenue that you walk there looking for the coming of Jesus realizing there will be a time when all trials will be over all tears is going to be wiped away from your eyes all heartache and trouble is going to be gone all pressures of life is going to cease friend listen you don't want to miss this you don't want to miss this that's why it is encouraging to live like this but we can't live it when we lose sight of His coming. There's not enough of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ 
mentioned in our lives every day. Every day we ought to say, Lord, when are you coming? Lord, I've waited so long. Whatever that song is, they ought to be a lively hope stirring in our spirit. Saints, don't lose sight of the fact what Jesus said when he dismissed himself and soared into the heavens. He simply said, you're going to see me come just like I go away. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And friend, that same cloud is going to make his appearing again. And we're going to see him as he descends from heaven and comes far and with his people. Friend, that ought to set every soul on fire. Amen. From the youngest down to the oldest. That ought to make us understand that it is a good thing to live soberly. It is a good thing to live godly. It is a good thing to live righteously. And you've got to do it not in the future and the coming, but you've got to live that way, Titus, in this world. (laughs) Hallelujah. Every Titus there is in this building. Every child of God is encouraged to live that way. And grace will teach you how to do it. And then he tells you that when you get weary and tired, and when things don't look so good for you, keep in mind what Jesus did for you. Isn't it strange that he inserted that? Who gave himself for us. Everything. Gave his life lived on this earth. Gave himself in death. And gave himself for us. All saints. That ought to make you want to live soberly. If you ever view Calvary. If you ever view it the way you ought to. If you ever make that trip there, then something about that ought to make you realize that He didn't have to be there. He didn't have to die there. And He gave Himself for you. That He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify all that constant purification unto Himself a peculiar people. A people unlike the world. A people whose lives are so different. Whose outlook is so different. Whose ob- objective in living is so different. But the people turn them oddball. All the time they're saying that, and I want to say it again. A life lived like this commands respect. If you live like this, there'll be a certain fear inside of them. And for the most part, if they ever get to the place where that strong will of theirs is broken, they're going to seek you out. They're going to try to find out what makes you tick. What makes you live like you live? What makes you deny unworldly lust? What makes you go put emphasis on riches? 
on houses and things. What makes you give to God holy, peculiar? And then he says, if you're that way, you'll be zealous of good works. That will just simply take charge of you until you won't want to do anything else until you become very zealous of those good works to see that your life is lived that way and to see that others has lived that way to the best, best of your ability is to take charge of you to heed what God has for you these things speak Titus you can't just live it you got to tell about it and exhort what things is he talking about the things I just talked to you about now Titus this is your job I've already exhorted Timothy I've already told him what to do but you're going to be an inspiration too Titus, by the way, was used as an evangelist as well as Timothy, but he's also used in apostolic ministry. Amen. We'll get to that in our Bible teachings on Wednesday night. And you've got to rebuke with all authority. In other words, he's saying, now Titus, I'm turning this over to you. My life is pretty close to the end. Second Timothy is the last letter Paul wrote. And I want to leave this gospel that I have lived and worked and cried and suffered for. I want to leave that in good hands. Amen. Here's how you do it, Titus. Let grace Don't just go off and say, I was washed in the blood of the Lamb. Saved and sanctified I am. Rejoice in the fact that the blood salvaged and saved you. That was grace. But his job's not done. It's still working and still teaching. And doesn't make any difference how old we get. Grace still has a lot of things to tell us about. In our lives. But it talks to us lovingly, rebuking lovingly, exhorting, he says. And use the authority I give you and don't let any man despise you. What's he saying? Don't let them have an occasion to speak ill against you and that be truth. That's what he's saying. Because I don't think there's any more despised people in the world than individuals who are just religious outside. Individuals who proclaim and do not live, they are despised individuals. You may think you're despised by living right, but not nearest despised, regardless of what they say, as individuals who claim something that they do not possess or live. That's a despised thing, and that's what Paul is saying in closing. Don't you do anything 
that will cause these individuals to despise you. You stay soberly, righteously, and live like that and godly. And Titus, don't ever lose sight of the coming of Jesus. For the first time, I think, Paul decided he wasn't going to live until Jesus came. You'll notice the change, I think, it's in 2 Timothy. You'll notice the change in his writings as he begins to prepare for death. But he's leaving Titus here. He don't know for sure whether the Lord's going to come in Titus's time or not. But whether he comes or not, the only salvation we have, the only way we can live like this, is to know that Jesus is coming. He might come for you tonight. But he is coming. And that very soon. And if we ever get hold of that, we want to live so we can look up in his glorious face. And don't blink an eye, but just stand and say, Lord, God, I've waited for you. I've longed for you. I've prayed for you. I've cried for you. And now you're here. Let's hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Faithful how? In living righteously, soberly, and godly. Refusing to be tainted by this world, I'll make you ruler. Know the joy of the coming of Jesus. All the joy of seeing this world burn, sin and ungodliness out of it. While the saints of God stand upon a sea of glass, must all evil destroyed at the end of the thousand years. And then he says, a new heaven, a new earth. Old Jerusalem has been restored. That's old Jerusalem all through the millennium. Haven't got new Jerusalem yet. But there's new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. as a bride adorned for her husband. Now we're getting ready for the King of kings and the Lord of lords to unveil himself. And now we're getting ready for an eternity without an end. Oh, it's worth living that way, isn't it? It's worth living soberly and righteously and godly in this world. It's worth denying ungodly lust. Just to inherit eternal life. Stand with me. Just to inherit eternal life. Lift your hands and your head and your heart to God. Say, Lord, that's the way I want to be found when you come. Whether you come for me at death or whether you come for me and I'm still alive, I want to be found living for you, proclaiming you, establishing you. I want to be found worthy to inherit eternal life. I want to see you look at me and say thou art worthy. You've lived a good life. You've fought a good fight. You've kept your faith. Now a crown of righteousness is ours. 
But the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. There's a margin in one of the Bibles that says, has appeared for all men. In other words, it's for everybody that wants it. It's appeared. It's saved us. It's washed us. It's cleansed us. It's made a new life out of us. Now then, don't take it. Let grace teach you how to live. Soberly. Righteously. Godly. Why am I saying this over and over? I don't know. But it needs to get inside. In this present world, looking unto Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus endured the cross despite the shame because he looked not at what he was going through then but the glory that would be his. 